Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. everybody and welcome to the latest episode, episode 8 I think, of Wild Wild Podcast and I am joined as ever by my co-host Rod Barnett. Hi Rod. Hello. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. It's an extremely humid and hot uh, summer here in the middle of Tennessee and uh, that is making the suffering pretty strong but hey, what can you do? I think that kind of sounds like it'd be quite nice but I suppose it's only nice if you've got aircon. It, it is. The moment you step outside, it's as if you've stepped into a sauna. Uh, mm. Sweat immediately appears on, on on any exposed flesh, and you begin to realize that there are parts of your body that just should not feel that way, and it's just it's awful. I mean, we'll, we'll get to the uh, when we get to our film in a minute. Some of the shooting, uh, lo- the location shooting for this film looks like they must have been boiling. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah, and wearing those costumes, but especially Richard Keel. Some of the costuming yeah. he's wearing out in that blazing <laughs> hot sun is like man. yes. Still, at least he wasn't dressed as Chewbacca. I suppose it could have been worse. Yeah, true. Um, but anyway, we'll get to that. We'll get to the nature of the Star Wars uh, similarities between this week's <laughs> film um, in a moment. Metropolis, known ages ago as planet Earth, now faces its gravest hour. Lord Growl has just escaped from the prison satellite, where his brother, ruler of the peaceful galactic democracy, had exiled him. Malevolent and power-hungry, Growl has plans of vengeance that might forever alter the destiny of mankind Re- referencing pop culture in your films is now the thing that everybody wants to do obviously yeah. stranger things and ready player one is on back in 1979 
we've got an Italian filmmaker here doing it not so much um, you know kind of referencing as just blatantly ripping off um, but uh, it, it's kind of interesting to to think now if somebody made a film like The Humanoid now um, it would probably be considered to be hilariously ironic and uh, and postmodern whereas because probably it, yeah because it came out in 1979 it's just oh it's just a Star Wars ripoff but is this film just a Star Wars ripoff or is there more to it Stay tuned whilst we try and um, figure that out for ourselves. So we're we're continuing our journey through the Italian science fiction films where there is some element of going to space. Uh, we began with kind of rocket launches and now here we are in full-blown Star Wars space fantasy territory. And... Um, so the human so last time we talked about star crash and these two films really work together in the uh, in the star wars knockoff kind of vein yeah uh, in fact a couple of years ago i was i had very serious daydreams about creating a um star wars ripoffs film festival <laughs> and i thought that would be such a great idea for a festival and i was going to call it battles beyond star wars and um you know, I actually made quite a few inquiries. I found a venue. I found an artist who was going to do me a poster. I, um, all kinds of, but then of course, COVID hit and killed all of our dreams. And so uh, I haven't really picked up on that one again. But there is, there are a lot of, I mean, not just the Italians, you know, other people were doing these kinds of films too. The Turkish one, most notably, um, Turkish Star Wars, oh, yeah, which yeah. incidentally, Incidentally, I'm going to cover on the next episode of my other podcast, so uh, watch out for that one. Um, and there's the Italian film as well. Is that called Battles? Battle in Space? Oh my not, goodness. Uh, what I'm did I sure say? Which, Japan- I'm not sure which one Sorry. you're talking about. Japanese film is what I meant to oh, say. Oh, yes. It's, the okay, Japanese yeah. film, Battle in Space. Um, so there's a whole bunch of them. Plus, of course, on television, there was a, the you know, this was the era of Battlestar Galactica, the new... Uh, Buck Rogers Mm -hmm. and everybody was going space crazy in the late 70s and early 80s it was a pretty exciting time to be a kid uh, you know with all this stuff on TV and Star Wars toys and even I I think it's something that you and I should probably I mean we're we're a little older and sometimes we forget that there can be (laughs) fairly young people who might hear what we're talking about just out of curiosity and we should make the we should make this very clear (laughs) there was a period of time when uh, Star Wars did not exist. And I know that sounds completely insane to anyone born, you know, from 1980 mm-hmm. or, 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 or since. But this is true. There was a period of time when uh, a science fiction film did not automatically mean that people were going to have to find a way around or completely delve straight head on into the story the influence that star Wars has had over the genre in cinema. I mean, that's just, I know it's strange, but it's true. And so there is a sharp dividing line between 1977 before and after. And Mm -hmm. so when we're dealing with uh, something like the humanoid or star crash, it's very clear that these movies were made because of star Wars. Whereas as close as you could get to a, a super influential film, in the earlier 
part of the 1970s would be something like 2001 a space odyssey and if you want to see mm. if you want to compare and contrast this severe difference in style or concept or just approach in general then you know watch 2001 a space <laughs> odyssey and star wars back to back and you will understand yeah. how 2001 was working really hard to to bring some intellectual heft or some thoughtfulness to mm. the science fiction genre on camera Whereas, you know, and, and on the printed page in the past, that, is, that had been the way it was. But 2001 was essentially a, a big budget attempt to do something um, to kind of pull thoughtful science fiction you know, in cinema away from Buck Rogers and Ray Guns and, you know, hmm. that kind of thing. Where Star mm. Wars was the antithesis of that approach. Yeah. It was, we want, we want to bring the Ray Guns back. Right. And that is all well, fine, and good, but understand that Star Wars was such a gigantic crack in cinema that it, it kind of broke the brains of people who will, shall we say, put the money up to make a science fiction film. And so there is this sharp dividing line between before and after where if you can find a science fiction film made after 1977 that does not have Star Wars influences, you you're going to be shocked and surprised. Mm -hmm. And the the question always just kind of becomes, well, you know, did, did they bring anything fresh or interesting or new or to, you know, to their concept of, well, we need to make something that people who like Star Wars will go watch. That's mm -hmm. really, for me, the, the deciding factor on how I'm going to end up feeling over time about any of these movies. And I think, um, I'm going to be curious, Adrian, to find out what you're, what I really am going to be, I can't wait to find out what you think of this movie because, man, has my opinion changed of this film over time. It's bizarre. Well, I, I mean, I wish I had had the opportunity to see this film when I was a kid, but I, I mean, I was, I'd never even heard of The Humanoid until about two years ago. Mm. Uh, I don't think it ever really popped up. If this, if this had been on TV in the, in the 80s, I would have watched it and, and, I mean, I was watching anything like this. I mean, I even enjoyed the Ewok movies. Ooh. I mean, I, you know, I was watching any of this kind of Star Wars adjacent or sci, you know, kiddie sci-fi stuff. I loved it all. But um, now the humanoid, and we'll get to this a bit later, but they, they, they did get a UK cinema release. Oh. But then I don't think it ever showed up on video or TV or anything. I'd certainly never even heard of it. In fact, I was at a film event about three years ago and I was browsing through a box of cheap old quad posters and I picked one up for the humanoid and it was only five quid and I didn't buy it and <laughs> I regret it to this day because <laughs> it was only it was only later that I realized there was an Antonio Margariti connection for a start mm, um, yeah and I just didn't know what it was and I didn't buy I spent my money on uh, something else in fact I did buy an Margariti poster that was in the same box but anyway, I, to this, I regret it because it was only shortly after that I realised what the humanoid was and uh, that was a missed, a missed opportunity. But yeah, the humanoid is a really interesting film. But let's start off by talking just briefly about who made the humanoid. So I've already mentioned, so Margariti is involved uh, mm -hmm. with the special effects. The director is Aldo Lardo. And he's perhaps best known for his work in jallo um i'm assuming you're familiar with him and his movies oh yes definitely um his his films uh short night of the glass dolls 
and who saw her die are exceptional uh, giallos. Mm. They're 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 different from in several ways. They're different from the run of the mill giallos that make them kind of stand out in an interesting way. And uh, I recommend both of them heavily. I also recommend for those with uh, the ability to watch something influenced by uh, Last House on the Left, check out his film uh, uh, Murders, Murders on the Night Train or Last Stop on the Night Train from 1975. There, it comes under different oh, yeah. titles, but mm-hmm. they always include Night Train. It's a pretty, it's a pretty rough film, but it's it's uh, it's also pr- it's a, it's also quite a good movie. It's just uh, you kind of got to know that you're going to see some rough stuff when you when you push play on that one. Mm. Yeah, that one. Um is it something that's called Night Train Murders and yeah. something? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I just watched recently Who Saw Her Die, and that, I think we've talked about it before, about how skinny George Lazenby is in that film. It's like the, <laughs> my main my main takeaway from that. Um, but, yeah, that's a great film as well. Also, El- Enzo Castellari was involved with The Humanoid yes. as well. Um, and so he's got quite a crew around him. Now, Castellari, of course, best known for uh, some... Well, he's done loads of great films, and we're going to talk about him more in uh, in a forthcoming season of the podcast. But for me, he will always be the director of Bronx Warriors. I can understand, yeah. I was lucky enough to meet Castellari briefly at a festival a few years ago, and I've got a signed um, Betamax copy of Bronx Warriors somewhere around here. Well, I've been such um, a fan of Castellari. I, I discovered yeah, him. I, I did the the typical backup thing of an American moron who's a t- who's a, who was a teenager in the eighties. Is like I discovered his name on those uh, post apocalyptic films he made in the eighties, mm. and then backed up and discovered completely crazy things. Like uh, I mean, just how how good he was at like the the cop movies that he made, like uh, oh, Street yeah. Law and High Crime and mm-hmm. and The Big Racket, especially which when that came out on DVD, that was just a a brain-bending discovery, but he made he's made so many great films, and one I'll uh, one I'll champion and just really I keep hoping that if I keep talking about it, it'll come out on DVD. He made this spaghetti western in 1968 called Johnny Hamlet, which mm. is Shakespeare's Hamlet set in the spaghetti west, and I okay. absolutely love it. Johnny Hamlet. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. Even even me just explain <laughs> if I were to go into detail and explain how they adapted it, just it wouldn't do it justice. You just have to see mm-hmm. Johnny Hamlet. It's like when is that coming out on Blu-ray? You losers, come on! Yeah, there's a, there's a few of his films that are still kind of missing from general circulation, which is a shame. Yeah, there but are yeah, a couple that'll probably never come out, like The Last Shark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yes, that's the one I'd love to get a decent copy of. Um, but yeah, Castellari's, you know, and of course he did the original Inglorious Bastards as well. He's got such a, a great CV of, uh, of fun films. Mm-hmm. Um, so the so the Humanoids got an interesting bunch of people behind it. Um, on camera, we've got quite a cast as we'll we'll go through the plot and kind of discuss them. Our big star, as we mentioned, of course, is Richard Keel, uh, fresh out of Moonraker, I think, when he made this. Yeah, um, and uh, and Corin Cleary, who we've talked about before, I'm sure, um, when we've talked about your the Hunter from the Future, and um, she's been in a few things. She did that great film Hitchhike, which yes. I've got a feeling we we discussed as well in a previous episode. So it's got a pretty good cast behind it, 
and the the it's, it seemed to have had quite a good budget. Oh, Bar oh, we should also mention Ivan Razumov, of course, and uh, Barbara Bach. Um, so some great Arthur people Kennedy. in here. Uh, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, yeah, really good people in the film. And then we've got um, quite a decent budget, pretty interesting location shooting in Israel, which is where I mentioned before the some of the stuff where it just looks like it was so hot running around in the desert doing the stuff they were doing. Um, but with all of that, oh, and of course a score, but I shouldn't forget the score oh, by yeah. none other than Morricone. Uh, so there's a lot of elements. So this film ought to be great but is well, it money was money was spent on this film yeah mm. so was it good that is the question let's see if we can <laughs> let's see if we can decide between us so i thought what we would do is i'll go for this plot summary again courtesy of matt blake and um just stop me when you want to chip in okay so um i mean it's basically it's very star wars and we'll we'll make some comparisons with the characters uh, probably as we go through so Matt Blake says it is far far in the future so there we go it's different because I think <laughs> Star Wars is a long time ago um, and the earth which has been renamed Metropolis for some reason or other presumably just to make it sound more sci-fi I guess is yeah. is ruled by the benevolent and wise great brother and I thought this great brother who the, the sort of wise and benevolent he's basically like uh, wise and benevolent ruler Christopher Plummer, the emperor in Star Crash. <laughs> Which means so he, he secretly has to be some kind of horrible dictator, right? Yeah. So he's basically, I think it's just all one big family. Um, now, the great brother has a not quite so great brother called Lord Graal. Interesting titles. You've got great brother and Lord Graal, mm. um, played by Ivan Razumov. And Lord Graal has been in prison for years because of just being generally evil and but at the beginning of the film he escapes from prison and he's got some scheme in mind to get revenge on the great brother um and he's going to do this by hooking up with a scientist who you mentioned played by arthur kennedy right? that's a dr craspin mm -hmm. um who's invented <laughs> He's invented this brilliant MacGuffin called Capitron. And I don't know, did you understand what it was Capitron okay, well, does? It's yeah, kind of like... Capitron is whatever it is the the hard to come by element that allows him to create his uh, his invincible soldiers. And mm. uh, I I love the doctor I love the mad doctor's name, Dr. Craspin. It's as if they discovered mm -hmm. some at somewhere at some point when when naming these characters that we have to have hard consonants because that 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 connotates evil, you know, Craspin. Yeah. And he's mm -hmm. his plan is to use this uh, difficult this difficult to come by uh, substance to create an unstoppable bunch of super soldiers that he for some reason calls humanoids. It's it's a it's a bizarre choice. Why don't you call them I don't know, super soldiers or stormtroopers. Yeah. I don't know, something. Stormtroopers maybe. What, what what does humanoid actually mean? It means <laughs> uh, they're not robots. Know, like like a humanoid, like a yeah. human, uh, a humanish, so you know. They're, they're humans but they're like robots. They mm -hmm. they they can be controlled like robots but they're still human, I think. 
Um, so yeah, so he's got this thing that will create these super soldiers. And um, so Lord Graal sends his men to attack the scientific institute and the buildings where all this happens are really cool. Yeah. And it's an interesting, when you look at it, it's an interesting mix of real kind of really 70s sci-fi looking buildings in Israel combined with forced perspective and miniatures created by Margariti to make this really cool kind of science fiction cityscape in the desert. Well, it's really amazing um, because they the, the way they shot all this stuff... There, there is this combination of real places. I mean, real, actual, physical places you can see people walking around on. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of crowd shots, and you get to see the, the you get to see these buildings that are, you know, absolutely fascinating looking. And then they enhance it in that smart way mm-hmm. where they, they've built a few, like they've built a few um, uh, uh, outlying spots that are like uh, watchtowers for the soldiers who are guarding the place that are obviously things they've added to the area. And then yeah. they do all this, uh, you know, these foreground miniatures and stuff like that. And uh, mm. this is this is the point where I'm going to have to, like, mention very clearly that if you can find a really good-looking print of this film, and there, it's, it's available if you look around on YouTube uh, in mm. proper places. These shots, these... Uh, these shots, the special effects in this movie, they're they're a cut above uh, what you might expect for an Italian science fiction Star Wars ripoff. There's some really oh, yeah. impressive model work, and the force perspective stuff in here, and the, the some of the matte shots. There's some really good stuff here. Don't get me wrong; it's not um, it's not up to the level of something that you would have expected. You would have expected to see in an American-made film of the same vintage, but at the same time, it's really effective stuff. And it's 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 kind of amazing when you re- when you look at the, the the team that was assembled to do this. You, you mentioned Margariti, but mm. one of the guys who was responsible for creating a lot of the miniatures uh, for different areas of the film was a guy named Emilio Ruiz, and uh, this is a guy who. Who, who did a lot of this kind of stuff and he did right. he did he built some, several of the models for this i mean he worked on uh, um, the like the two conan films uh, uh he ended up w- winning awards for his work on the uh, guillermo de toro films later on including pan's labyrinth and the devil's backbone and stuff like that for right. for for doing you know for building like foreground models and doing matte shots and things like this so there's a level of competence to the special effects on this film that is i hate to say it but kind of unexpected <laughs> yeah it's a great looking film and it makes it kind of makes star crash look like the poor relation yeah um you know the sets that they're using and like you said the the location. I mean, when in Star Crash, when they go on location, they're just in a quarry somewhere or on a beach. Yeah. There's no. There's not much going on, or in a cave. Um, it's pretty cheap looking, uh, but yeah, this film really does look pretty great. So we've got. Um, so we've got this lab, and the um, and the, the labs is where Doctor Craspin did all this work before he teamed up with Lord Graal. Oh, and we mustn't forget Lady Agatha. Oh yes. Who I think is Lord Graal's girlfriend, and she's two hundred years old, and is being kept young by um, she's basically like a Countess Bathory type, who's being kept alive by some kind of serum made from the blood of young women. 
I know. And, th- and this is one of the reasons why she's happy to keep Dr. Craspin around because it's mm. his it's his treatment that's keeping her incredibly young looking. Yeah. And of course she's played by Barbara Bach, so she's, you know, absolutely mm. gorgeous, but and she's got the most amazingly crimped hair. <laughs> yes, I, I know. It's her hair is it's fantastic. It's crimped to be like a massive hood. But it's it's, in, it, it's it's a gorgeous thing. It's actually it actually mm-hmm. deserves, her hair deserves its own credit in the film, and it doesn't get it. It's yeah. a shame. It's like her hair has been made into Darth Vader's helmet. <laughs> I know, I know. It's pretty well, spectacular. Well, well, just as an aside, are you? Well, I I don't know if it, I don't know if the right word would be surprised, but are you kind of impressed maybe with how many horror film elements are woven throughout this story? Yeah, and it's surprising because this you know, you would expect this to just be a film for kids. Um but, but then you've yeah. got stuff that is not suitable for kids. I mean <laughs> so we the first time we see this process take place, they bring this woman in to this um basically like a room full of she's put into this machine full of needles. Mm-hmm. It's it's like what we would have called an iron maiden. Um except these needles are all gonna stab into her and then suck out all of her blood. Um, and she's naked and you see these needles go right into her chest right and i watched well the first time i saw this i thought hang on this is this has overstepped the mark a little bit well i mean Um, it's it's interesting to know that i mean first of all the scene you're talking about is is kind of impressive and they knew it was impressive when they made the movie because i mean in certain countries the ad art, the the poster art, yeah, was used uh, uh, used that image as the basis mm-hmm. for the paintings for for the for the advertisements for the film, and yet uh, the way that this movie usually gets chopped down for television or to turn it into kind of a PG friendly film is mm-hmm. to simply remove all the shots of that naked woman and this you yes. know the, these needles going into her body, and that's mm-hmm. about all the film really needs to a certain degree to kind of soften it up a little bit. But mm. it's bizarre because it is intrinsic to this horror element where we've got this, as you say, Elizabeth Bathory character who's being kept alive by the blood of younger women. It's bizarre. And it sort of seems like they didn't quite know who the target audience was for this film. Mm-hmm. I don't. Maybe they hadn't quite realized yet that Star Wars was primarily skewed young. I mean, obviously now most original star wars fans are in their 40s and 50s yeah but at the time they were all kids and that's not something that kids needed to see (laughs) they might want to see it but need to see is a different matter yeah quite surprising yeah it's an interest the tone is you know not very appropriate or or consistent in this film it's kind of strange it's like it skews too old for the main audience but also too young for the for the other audience so but the elements that skew in those two age directions are distinct and Mm. bizarrely removable you know from one thing to the other it's it's strange it's 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 an odd combination yeah so um so kral has teamed up so he's got craspin and he's got lady agatha and he sends his soldiers to overthrow metropolis and steal capitron uh, from this lab and loads of people get killed. The only survivor appears to be... Now, this is... It makes me laugh every time I think about it. So the lab assistant is called Barbara Gibson. Right. And this brings us back to a discussion we've had previously that you've also had on your podcast about <laughs> names of characters in sci-fi. Yes. It's so funny. Because they even just... They, they won't just call her Barbara. 
they always say Barbara Gibson, Barbara Gibson, Barbara Gibson, Barbara Gibson. Barbara Gibson. Especially that Barbara Gibson. Her name is Barbara Gibson. I know. Why? Why did? Why did? They, okay, let's let's point out to people that <laughs> the here are the character names in this film: mm. Lady Agatha, Doctor Craspin, Tom mm. Tom, who's a character we haven't talked about quite yet. Oh, great yeah. brother, the great brother, Lord Growl, uh, Golob, Gobob. Oh, and Golob, Gobob. Barbara Gibson. Barbara Gibson. <laughs> what in the name of God were they thinking? I mean, even they could have used her own name. Corin Cleary sounds more science fiction than Barbara Gibson. <laughs> I know you're who, right. You're right. Who is Barbara Gibson, and why did they give her that name? It's so funny. It's just the most unsci-fi name. It's and but the fact that they just keep saying it all the time as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe just once and then forget about it. Fine, but over and over again, Barbara Gibson. Barbara Gibson. Barbara Gibson. Especially that Barbara Gibson. Her name is Barbara Gibson. Yeah, I know. It's as if it's a hyphenated name, as if you can't yeah. just say Barbara. You know, it's yeah. bizarre. There's also there's also the kind of heroic love interest, Nick. It's it's like they ran out of good names in the end. Yeah, well, I wasn't going to bring up Nick because, at least with <laughs> Nick, once again, you're only dealing with a, a single-syllable name. And you know, yeah. who knows how that's spelled, right? You know, and that could be could anything. It could, could be short for some kind of science fiction-y name. Yeah, for, for, for Nickelodeon, Nicodemus, or who the hell knows, mm. right? <laughs> Barbara Dixon. Barbara Dixon, I just said. Barbara Gibson. Barbara Gibson. Could be Barbara Dixon. Uh, that makes just as much sense. Yes, it does. So, um, so Graal and Craspin, they get the Capitron, but for some reason they've only got enough initially to test it on one person. So, um, they're looking around to see who they're going to test it on. Yeah, okay, we need we need a proof of concept segment here. We, yeah. need to, we need to prove this works. Meanwhile, so we cut to <laughs> uh, a space captain who's flying around the galaxy in his little ship on his own. He appears to be some kind of cop of of some type. Yeah, yeah. He's only got um, his robot dog for company, and this is of course <laughs> Golob. Yeah, this is Golob, played by Richard Keel. Should we talk about this, this yeah. damn robot dog now, or yeah. shall I just string out my hatred of this thing throughout the entire discussion? So. Oh, I think you should string it out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> his robot dog is called Kip. Now, as I say, it's 1979. I think by this point, I'm pretty sure we've already met K-9 in yeah. uh, Doctor Who. This is true. I think. I think K nine. Oh, you have first yeah, appeared. definitely, definitely. First, yeah, K nine first appeared in nineteen seventy seven. So I think Kip has to be inspired partly by K nine, but they've also made it look a little bit like R two D two. Oh yeah, it's a kind of R two D two K nine crossbreed, if you like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go go on then. What's tell us why you don't like the dog? Okay, first of all. Folks, one of the things that pro that cropped up consistently in Star Wars ripoffs were, of course, some way in which, because producers and writers didn't completely comprehend exactly what R2-D2 and C-3PO connotated within, <laughs> within the film. They just knew, uh, gotta have robots, gotta have robots mm -hmm. of some type. So, uh, what we have here is someone's attempt to create a, huh, well, okay, what we need is a robot. We need a robot that uh, can be played for laughs, that, that we can get some jokes out of. Um, 
Let's see. What would be the most lovable version? Ooh, we'll make it look like a dog. There we go. There we go. Okay, so it look like a dog. Look like a dog. This is good. This is good. This has been proven to be just a standard thing in cinema. You make something look like a dog. It's easy. People identify with it. Kids love dogs. That's this is perfect. This is awesome. What if you had a dog that could never die? Okay, don't think those don't think down those roads. Don't go down that path. So what we have here is a dog. That's a robot. That's the comedy sidekick that will just pop up occasionally and it'll always be clear that this thing really really can't function but all those shots of r2d2 somehow walking you know somehow like maneuvering his way through the tatooine desert we'll have a great visual that'll look a whole lot like that the kids will love it they'll soak it up and i'm telling you now every time they use this dog in this film i just want to hit it with a sledgehammer I just mm. I want this I want this robot dog. He's there. He serves a good purpose. That he has one good purpose that he serves throughout the film, which he has to have. Richard Keel's character has to have something in the first part of the movie mm. to talk to, <laughs> so that we can get you know essentially information dumps, so that we can get a sense of what the hell is happening or what's going through this character's mind without him being a, a lunatic just jabbering away to himself. Mm. And that I get, I understand that, but I there came a point in the movie, especially watching it a second time here recently, where I realized that they could have gotten much more out of this movie, and it would have made it a little bit darker, I understand that, so maybe that's why they shot away from it, if the character is used that way in the first part of the movie and then gets blown up, like gets shot by like Lord Growl's bad guy sh- soldiers and blown all to crap. And then you get the, all the pathos and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the dark feelings of, Oh my goodness, they destroyed the robot dog. But mm-hmm. you could have even had them rebuild the damn thing and bring it back at the end of the movie. If you wanted to like make the kids leave, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> screenings of this thing feeling better, but no, they keep the damn dog throughout the movie and it's, irritating every time because it's like i'm sorry the the they they i I hate to put it this way they often use the the the, uh comedic reactions of the dog to give Mm -hmm. you some emotional import when some of the other actors on screen can't pull it off yeah and it also i mean it's not even a very good robot Mm -mm. (laughs) it's it's like a very poor remote control. Its tail is the aerial for the remote control. Yeah. And it, it seems to, it's on casters and it seems to struggle a little bit to get across the desert. <laughs> it's just quite, yeah, it's not great. Like I say, and also, if, they, if they'd used it the first part of the film to give him something to talk to and then blown it up, mm-hmm. that would have been very interesting, but they don't go that route. But also, I mean, in Star Wars, the R2 units have, you know, a purpose. They're quite useful. They're like a tool. Exactly. Whereas this is basically just there for him to talk to. Mm-hmm. I mean, he might as well just had a parrot. Or, <laughs> maybe was it a, ro- or a robot parrot. Um, but yeah, so he's flying around the galaxy. He's like a space captain. He's a little bit like the kind of Han Solo type space captain. I don't know what we could call him. But yeah. he's also, he's like Han Solo and Chewbacca rolled into one because he is... Richard Keel, and he's about seven foot something tall. Now, what I do like about this, and oh, he's also got a beard, and he looks weird with a beard. In my, I think he looks better with a beard than without it. Though. Yeah, well, possibly, but I think it's a stuck-on beard. I don't think it's a real. Oh, it's beard. definitely a stuck-on beard. Yeah. yeah so it's we're just funny looking, but I, this is the most I think in any film. I might be wrong. Write in and tell me. I think this is the most dialogue Richard Keel ever has 
it in has any to film be. he's ever done. It has to be, and it was a bad idea to do that. <laughs> I'm not trying to be mean spirited or anything here, but let's let's be straightforward. Richard Keel was a limited actor, mm-hmm. and there there are strain there. Are, lengths of dialogue here where he's rattling it off and there's a part of me that wonders how many takes they got into before they got it they got it to that level and i fear mm-hmm. for the for the director's mindset you know it's just like oh. he's just he's not a i mean as a presence on screen he's wonderful but the mm-hmm. idea of giving richard keel just loads of expository dialogue was never a great concept are your circuits clogged or something? This is no time for games. Who programmed you anyway? If you want to play games, go outside and play. It's all right. Don't worry, boy. We'll get out of this summer. You know, the worst that can happen to us is we'll spend 2,000 years in suspended animation. They should have given the dialogue to the dog. <laughs> oh, they're not. Uh, you know what? That you're, you're not wrong. You're and not had wrong. him just listening and nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, it is probably the most. It's probably the best part he ever had for him. It's the meatiest part, I think. Yeah, having stuff to do. Um, but yeah, so for like the first kind of good third of the movie, he's got dialogue. He's he's a hero. He's a mm-hmm. nice guy. Uh, it's pretty good for him. But then, of course, he gets hit by the Capitron, which is a ray. Do they do it? As a, I can't remember. Do they? How do they hit him with the Capitron? It's kind of a. It's kind of like this glittery stuff. Yeah. It's, it's kind of strange. He gets attacked by the Capitron, and then all they all his his hair falls out of his beard. His beard falls off, which is kind of weird. I don't know if all of his bodily hair falls off or just. <laughs> That's a, a that's a terrifying thought you just put in my head. Yeah, there, it's, yeah. I don't know what it's just like a weird side effect of Capitron is that you can't have a beard. But um but then he becomes the Richard Keel that we know and love. He becomes a monosyllabic destruction machine. He becomes um, the Hulk, essentially. Yeah. And then he seems to be indestructible and just goes around terrorizing and smashing up the place. Um so Barbara, who I think knows how to stop it is obviously going to be on the path, on the on the case but of course we can't forget as well Barbara has a friend yes. who I in my blog about this I described him as her ward uh, and his name is Tom Tom and now Tom Tom is basically Luke Skywalker and Yoda combined into one character <laughs> well yeah but uh, a year before Yoda even existed yeah this is true he's like a small Asian boy dressed like Luke Skywalker but with uh, fortune cookie wisdom uh, and, and bizarre sort of, powers of some sort yeah and he's got undefined I think at some point he's described somewhere I read they describe him as being from Tibet I think it might be one of the reviews I read uh, he's got <laughs> like this kind of mystic, mystic, mysticism um, associated with the fact that he's Asian so therefore he's got mystical powers it's a little bit orientalist i think from that point of view yeah he's got kind of undefined psychic abilities or telekinetic powers or something and he can somehow psychically connect to um golob um barbara gibson barbara gibson (laughs) knows she knows that she can she was friends i think with golob 
so she's going to try and get through to him as well um, and then they've got Nick who's also going to help uh, Nick is her boyfriend um, and they've got to stop him so he's turned into this humanoid and meanwhile Graal who is dressed like what's he, he's basically he's basically Darth Vader yeah. but with a mask that looks like a He's kind of a cross between Darth Vader and a gladiator. Or Darth it's Vader like, and like an American football helmet. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's like instead of the full mask, they've cut eye holes in it and a mouth hole for him to breathe a bit more easily. Yep. So we can just about see Ivan Razumov's face under there. But I mean, I mean, I said this in my blog. It is so much like Star Wars. It's a miracle they didn't get sued. I mean, even, even the set. So not only his costume, the set's look like they were just sneaking onto Elstree at night when nobody was around and <laughs> shooting and all this because yeah, there's quite a few bits where it just looks like they're walking along corridors of the Death Star it's pretty uncanny it's well it's true yeah because obviously with Star Crash nobody involved had actually seen Star Wars but by the time they made this one everyone had seen it so they were able to base the designs much more closely on what um, on what Star Wars looked like and uh, it's pretty uncanny. So yeah. So anyway, so they've got this plan. They want to overthrow the Great Brother. So whilst they've got um, Richard Keel here, just walking around, smashing everything at their command, they're trying to build a weapon that can carry enough Capitron that they can in turn the entire population of Metropolis into their slaves. And with those slaves, they can overthrow the universe or something have i got that about right it's Even... about right lord grawl intends to take his <laughs> his brother's place and uh become the ruler of the the universe or the galaxy mm. I, I forget exactly how they phrase it and mm. uh lady agatha uh, makes it very clear I, I i kind of enjoy the dialogue between the two of them when he yeah. he asks her what her intentions are why she's going along with this and helping and she's just like you know just just one you know just essentially just using you as a means to an end and i think that's kind of nice it's 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 very interesting but yeah it is um it is a pretty good dynamic between those two um there's a lot of uh, so basically i mean yeah so it just it basically builds up to a big fight on the base with loads of people firing blaster guns around um now there are no there are no lightsabers in this one. No. But there are but there are two mysterious white robed figures who are somehow connected to Tom Tom. And they occasionally just show up and shoot an arrow which is like a kind of laser light arrow. Yeah, it's it's so they one just, of the most bizarre elements of this film and that's mm. saying something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um so yeah, so there's this big old shootout at the end. Um, oh, I think eventually, perhaps, I think, yeah, so they managed to get, so Golob, after being the bad guy for a while, Tom Tom's psychic powers and Barbara Gibson, Barbara Gibson, uh, she they managed to tame the Golob. Yeah, and, and Tom Tom's psychic abilities or, or yeah. uh, somehow, or te telepathic abilities somehow allow him to, like, free Golob from the control of the, the evil mad scientist, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they all team up together uh, to then fight back against Lord Graal. And there's a very long, big shootout in the in the base where they're trying to stop them 
from being able to use or launch this missile that they've made. Um, and of course they win and it's all, everything's happy. But that's not really, the story is not the important part, I think. <laughs> um, I mean, what's, what's great about this film is the, like we've mentioned already, the special effects are very good, the sets are very good. There's a lot of really good miniature work of space stuff as well. Yeah, it, can, it's really surprising. Yeah, you can tell that you know, Margariti and his gang, they've sat down and watched Star Wars a number of times mm -hmm. and made some notes because there's a lot of shots of things like Star Destroyers, um, Golob's ship looks like a Millennium Falcon. Um, there's some good shots of space and planets and smaller spaceships docking um, and all kinds of cool stuff. I mean, so Margarita had obviously done this stuff before a bit in his own films, as well as Mission Stardust, where he was the special effects supervisor on that one. Mm -hmm. um, and some of so the the space special effects are great, and then he, as we mentioned as well, the, the the way that he created this space city in Israel is also really cool. The place I, I've looked it up online. The place is called Eliat, and it's some kind of facility that they found and used but what he did to make those sets look bigger and look more spacey he did again a few years later in treasure island in outer space yeah where he's he's taken various bits of cities and then made them so he sort of sci-fi them up by basically like you were saying like use force perspective and miniatures and things well it's so, all it's all in how you frame shots where you can use yeah. these these very interesting bits of architecture to kind of give you a futuristic feeling it's amazing Mm. so it's really great um, the, the, if you're a Star Wars fan with a sense of humour I think you would enjoy this film a lot I do I mean, too if you, if you take Star Wars too seriously then maybe you just find the whole thing incredibly offensive I don't know <laughs> but I think it's great fun so um, I mean the you know, in, in his book um, Matt Blake talks about it at length and he mentions how Aldo Lardo regretted his involvement in the film which seems a shame I think basically he didn't have any other work and so he just had to take it um, well I think that one of the reasons and it, not that that Lado seems to say this straightforwardly but I think he was stepping outside of his comfort zone to do a science yeah, fiction film in the first place and, there's a, and if you look at his films before that you realize that they were very, you know, they were very contemporary set films, and they're the kinds of things that, as a director, you can exert a fair amount of control over every aspect of those earlier films. You shoot a giallo or a crime film, you know exactly, you know, you 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 can you can envision it all very effectively. Where with a science fiction film, there are huge chunks of it you just got to turn over to the technicians and get you know give them the idea of what you want. And whether you get that or not is really kind of up in the air until, you know, later on in the production. And I think that that may factor into why this director feels, you know, feels kind of regretful about it because he couldn't, like I say, this is just me surmising it and looking at this being the only film in his career where he would have had to have dealt with these kind of elements. Mm -hmm. And I can understand that. And it yeah, also, he's... I think, it also, you know, with that opening, uh, fight sequence where they uh where he he acquiesced to them bringing in uh, enzo castellari to yeah. shoot that segment because castellari knew you know knew action very effectively and that's not something that lato had a lot of a uh, lot of experience with 
And, you know, so there's, you know, the, the knowledge that, you know, there's a, a section of the movie that kind of gets the ball rolling right at the start of the movie that feels a little bit different from the rest of the movie. But, you know, if you don't know that somebody else directed those segments, it wouldn't matter to mm. you. You just think, oh, well, you know, it gets this exciting start. Mm. But at the same time, as the director, uh, you know, of the direct as the director of credit, you know, knowing that there was a portion of your film you were also ceding to another director probably plays into his feelings, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the film—it's got a good pace. You're never really bored. No, it, it moves like it moves pretty well. It's a it's a it's yeah. a quick ninety minutes overall. Yeah. So El El Delato is quoted in here. He's saying at that point, uh, he said, "I searched desperately for another film to do, but I couldn't find I couldn't find anything. So I did the humanoid for the money. I swear to you, it's the only film of my entire career where, when I got to the set in the morning, I wanted to top myself. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, he's really not having a good time." Um, there, there's a review mentioned in here, an Italian review, where it says um, the so it talks about the fact that you know it summarizes the plot. The results, aside from the coarseness of the infantile story, settings, and narrative developments, are on a technical level of those of a mediocre imitation of the American model as established by Star Wars. And I mean that's kind of fair enough, but I still think it's a shame. I mean I, I suppose the trouble is. We're, with us and I, certainly I feel this way I've got a lot of sympathy for films like this whereas if you're just a reviewer watching 10 films a week you're probably not going to have as much patience or specific kind of fondness for the genre yeah um, I, whereas I agree. people like us people like us are going to be far more patient yeah with <laughs> well and that's and with that's a, what I mean that's kind like of what this. I was alluding to earlier when I asked yeah. you because <clears throat> I first saw this film in kind of a rush of uh, attempting to locate, you know, obscure European exploitation films from this period, you know, more than I'd say ten or ten or twelve years ago, and what I saw was a was a really not particularly good looking copy, and I just I kind of watched it, soaked up what it was, and went, okay, well, it's not that not that spectacular, it's not that interesting, but I have to admit, having gone back to it now with a, a, not a perfect copy, but a much better looking copy of this film. I have to admit that my opinion over time has changed, and I don't, I don't consider it to be the the uh, the half-assed piece of garbage that I kind of felt <laughs> that it was the first time I watched it. You know, interesting elements, but not particularly good, was essentially my yeah. my feelings about it before. But now I'm I'm much much more. Uh, much more impressed with what's on screen and I enjoy it a lot more. Some of that is, you know, me, me getting older and seeing more things mm -hmm. and understanding more about what I'm looking at and also just having a better looking view of the damn movie. Uh, but mm -hmm. I will say this, it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating movie and it's one that I know there's a part of me that kind of wants to start screaming from the rooftops. You need to go see this movie. And there's another part of me that knows 90% of the people that would hear me say that will watch it and think that I'm insane. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. This is kind of why I was thinking it would be great to do a Star Wars ripoffs festival. Because then you could throw, you'd kind of, your audience would know what they were in for. Right. <laughs> and they'd all have a really great time. I think if you've got the right audience, this is a very enjoyable movie. And that's just it. If you can narrow cast this to people who, like, for instance, ask them, have you ever seen Star Crash? And if they get a big grin on their face, it's like, okay, well, then you need to see the humanoid. Mm. But if they get that look like they just smelled a, a horrible dead animal, then it's like, okay, well, then you don't need to recommend the humanoid <laughs> to this person at all. 
yeah, you, yeah. Star Crash is definitely the better known of the two films, mm-hmm. even though in many ways, I mean, and also I think ultimately, if I had to choose which film I was going to watch again, I'd probably watch Star Crash. <laughs> um, well, I would say that too, except if somebody were to put out a, and, and I, 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 I beg the universe for this to eventually exist, a Blu-ray special edition of the Humanoid. Oh, yeah. Would make me want to rewatch this just because I've seen it fewer times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but plus, the, the there are visuals in this that I think HD would do a world of of joy to because there's a, oh, yeah. there's so much within this movie. Don't get me wrong; it's also going to point out more of the more of the obvious technical flaws. But at the same time, there's some really good work being done in this movie, regardless of uh, you know the the bizarre combination of of adult horror level aesthetics and juvenile space fantasy stuff that you know doesn't always gel properly there's some interesting things here at least visually and plus it's got an Ennio Morricone score it's bizarre come on yeah the Morricone score I mean I was surprised when I saw Morricone's name in the credits because I was thinking all the way through oh this score is terrible it's bizarre (laughs) it's electronic yeah it doesn't sound great. It's like he's just discovered a synthesizer for the first time. Well, I think and some of it in certain at certain parts parts of the movie, I think the score works very well, and then there are others where it almost seems mm. to be rubbing against the grain. It's yeah, it's strange. It's, it's off putting. <laughs> trying to make a sci-fi sounding uh, soundtrack but of course what made Star Wars work so well was the orchestral soundtrack and again and the same with Star Crash yeah um, so I can see why they'd maybe want to try something different but it it's too different <laughs> it <just laughs> it's too really, different <laughs> doesn't really work um, but the film interestingly obviously although it's made um, I think it was made slightly later than Star Crash I think but um, it came out. It said it came out in the UK at the same time as Star Crash. In fact, they're both the films are both reviewed on the same page of the monthly film bulletin, which is interesting. That it came out in the same month. It's like you wait forever for Star Wars, a Star Wars ripoff to come out, and then two come along uh, at the same time. Um, and it was viewed very clearly in the review that I've read. Uh, they just say that it's virtually indistinguishable from other attempts to cash in on the success of Star Wars. So there was no fooling anybody that this was anything but a Star Wars um, rip-off. But yeah, uh, there's an interesting... Um, uh, Richard Keel, uh, both in his autobiography and in a couple of other places online, has talked about the making of this movie. Uh, mm. And this, this, is pre- this is pretty interesting. There, here's, here's a quote um, from Richard Keel, looking back you know, years and years later. He says... Uh, the humanoid could have been a huge success in America and the UK had the Italians been able to work with direct sound. 
Unfortunately, right. they were used. They were so used to dubbing everything later that it was impossible to get the crew to stop hammering and talking during the filming. While this mm-hmm. may work for Italian movie patrons, it wouldn't have worked for American and British audiences. In my opinion, American International, who were the ones who distributed it in the States, uh, yeah. what, was able to use the dubbing as an excuse to get out of their obligation to distribute the film in America, but perhaps the real reason was that they were going through some financial difficulties at the time and simply didn't want to have and simply didn't have the cash to pick up and distribute the film as they had originally planned. I say this because in spite of the dubbing, Columbia did release it in foreign markets. The film had potential to be kind of a spaghetti Star Wars, and I think that it would have found an audience made up of fans like your, like you know, like other Star Wars fans, who yeah. appreciated the valiant efforts that director Aldo Lada made against all odds. Unfortunately, it doesn't stand up today because of the technical advances that have been made in the area of computer graphics and stuff like that. Uh, but he goes on to say that he thinks that uh, this is years ago. He says, I think a DVD version that, you know, built to sell to a niche audience could probably do pretty well. And maybe uh, the film would find an audience in the States that way. And I think he's probably, like I say, I've, I've already been saying that to a degree. Yeah. But I think it's obvious that Keel's experience um, working on an Italian set, the way they do things, was a bit disconcerting to say the least mm. and uh you know having all these all this crap going on all the time seems to have been really incredibly distracting which you know not much of a shock really now i'm sure didn't i watch this with isn't it available with an english track oh yeah definitely it was done so, uh it, it was it, it was done but he he's he's surmising and this is just keel surmising that mm. uh the fact that it you know the fact that it was dubbed even though most uh, i think almost all of the actors are at least speaking in english so the dub yeah. matches really effectively and Ar- i mean yeah. like arthur kennedy's doing his own voice and so's barbara mm. bach i mean they're doing they're doing their own dubbing but uh, he's 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 wondering why you know AIP apparently had had a hand in financing the movie or at least putting up some cash for it, um, and he's he's just surmising on why they uh, ended up it ended up being distributed in the states by Columbia instead. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, one of the odder things about it is that um, the uh, you'll, you'll notice there's a there's a name in the credits you know attributed as one of the writers. Um, uh, if you look, if you if you look, uh, it, it, it's it's sometimes listed as uncredited or or something along those lines. But in in actuality, some of the uh, English dialogue, or at least some of the dialogue as used in the English translation, was supposedly written by someone named Gary. Wait a minute, what's the guy's name? Here? Gary Russoff. Gary Russoff, and apparently that is uh, like a cousin or a family, some kind of extended family member of uh, Arkoff. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And if you look this guy up, I mean, he's a guy who's written several novels, but nice. uh, and has uh, several. You know, he's got limited. Uh, he, he wrote. He apparently wrote the Evictors, which is a, a, a mid seventies kind of little, uh, uh, you know, country period thriller done by uh, Charles Pierce. And uh, mm. so it's 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 uh, which was which was AIP as well, wasn't it? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's it looks one like of those, you mean, it's. All these strange little connections and all these little things that are you know behind the scenes that are that allow a movie like this to get made, mm. <laughs> and uh, when, when you start digging into them and you, there are all these threads that come that, that come out, it's like you know, it, it's such a weird soup for for how things like this get made. Mm. And uh, you know, talking about the score, 
Yeah, it is odd. It's almost as if, and I, I don't know enough about Morricone's career. You said you said that it, it sounds like Morricone just like discovered a Moog synthesizer and went crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of I, I, that's kind of what I think too. But I don't have enough knowledge of his career to know when he started fiddling with electronics. Um, but I will mm-hmm. say this: I think that it's true. This is one of those scores where it plays better without the movie than with it sometimes mm-hmm. uh, because it's, you know, you have to kind of, you, you have to kind of key into what he's doing to, to enjoy it. But at the same time, it's very different from the full orchestral scores of things like star Wars or star crash. Yeah. And that may have been what they wanted, you know, mm. get, get those otherworldly sounds as, you know, to be part of the score itself and like mm-hmm. I say, there are scenes where I think it works, but yeah, if it pushes you away from the movie, I could understand. I could really yeah. understand that. <laughs> but overall, I really enjoy this film, and it's a film that that people need to see. And you can find, like you said, there are pretty decent copies of it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's yet to get any kind of decent home release, as far as I can tell. It doesn't look like it's been released on video, even. Well, I, 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 I tell you right it's now, the most on television. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say the best looking version of it I found on YouTube is one that just got uh, uploaded oh, okay. uh, on July the 31st of this year. <laughs> Strangely oh, enough, right. it's we the should tweet that one out. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll put I'll put that up. I'll, I'll put that up and let people get a shot at it. I'll even I'll even uh, put it up on my blog so people can take a look at it if they want to. Mm. But it's the it's the clearest version I've seen of this movie yet. I don't know what the mm. source material is. Uh, and I don't know how long this particular version will be up there. Right now, it's got less than 200 views, um, mm. but it's it's uh, it's an incredibly clear and much more sharp copy than I've seen of it anywhere else. And it's and it really does allow you to to get an idea of what might be possible if it's if somebody could do an HD uh, version of this film because it really really is, I mean don't get me wrong it makes some of the stuff look even wonkier but at the same time that's part of the joy of it in my opinion well yeah especially like I said the the um, you know, Margarita's special effects are so good they deserve to be seen in uh, in as high a res as possible I think possibly it did come out once on DVD in Italy and uh, that's where this print comes from that could, that's, be. that could be the copy that I have is from that original Italian DVD so that might be where it's from but yeah it's it's an impressive looking film and one that uh, that needs to be seen well bonus um, points to my, in my mind for a lot of the costume design too yeah a lot yeah, of care especially... and time was taken on the costume design in this I mean they were they're clearly uh, adhering to the uh, the basic Star Wars pattern of you know uh, you know e- evil characters have to wear black Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I really do love. You, you would think that it would be the Lord Growl costume that would be the most, uh, be the most impressive. But I have to admit, I like what Arthur Kennedy is forced to wear as the Mad Scientist. I just yeah, <laughs> the high, the good. high, the high collar and everything. It's amazing. Yeah, and Lady Agatha's costume just reminds me of Sybil Danning in um, Battle Beyond the Stars. Yeah, which also came out after this, similar. which is interesting. Yeah, yeah that's very true. similar costume. Very similarly revealing, again, <laughs> s- slightly unsuitable for the the young audience that they might be going for. Um, I know the film was cut again a certificate when it came out in the UK. They took that nudity out. I'm betting. So I'm I'm assuming it's at least that scene, um, if nothing else. 
Um, but yeah, it's a great film. Do your best to uh, to check it out. We'll we'll tweet out the YouTube link. Um, I also I met. Uh, I'm not going to tell the story now, but I met I met Richard Keel once, and mm -hmm. I made him ang I made him angry. And he oh. is a man. He's a man you do not want to make angry. What did you so, do? Well, if you, if it, um, uh, if the listener wants to find <laughs> how I made him angry, check out my blog, which I'm going to tweet out okay. on the humanoid from a couple of years ago because we're uh, we're rapidly running to uh, to quite a long episode. So I'm, if I tell that story, we'll be here all day. But um, <laughs> well, so I'll, I'll I will just say one more thing, which is that yeah. uh, this film. Well, actually, two more things. This film. Uh, to hire I Ivan Rasimov and to mostly hide his his very expressive face it seems like mm. a bit of a crime. I know um, he's I mean, a good looking man. Well, he's 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 good looking and he's also extremely good at looking uh, looking looking like a dodgy person or even an, a, mm. a really evil and vengeful kind of person. And the fact that yeah. that costume covers up so much of his face is like, man, he, he's mm -hmm. he's really good at this kind of stuff. If you could see past that metal crap in front of his yeah. nose. I mean, I'm sure that they he probably argued that they had to show at least some of his face because when he saw the that he saw the Darth Vader costume, he's like, nope, <laughs> I'm not wearing. You've got to show some of my face at least. So they cut some holes in it, but yeah, uh, you still can't see quite enough of him. Oh, and uh, in my continuing quest to be as bizarre with this kind of stuff as I can be, there is actually, believe it or not, a song. <laughs> A, oh. a, a song out there that was that was inspired by the humanoid. Oh, good! Uh, by a band by? called Yeah, it's a U.S. band named Ganymede. Uh, they recorded a song called "Love Games." Now, with that title, you would not have any idea that, of course, it had anything to do with the humanoid. But <clears throat> they've been very clear about it and have written about the fact. And if you read the read the lyrics, it's very clear um, that yeah, that this is this is. I mean, it's it. Lays it all out there, but the name of the song is "Love Games" by the band Ganymede. They've been uh, very happy to uh, to talk about it in the past. It's uh, it was it was it was done in the early it was done in the early eighties, I think. Right. But the uh, the the strange the, the strange effects of uh, odd science fiction films like this. Yes, there are, <laughs> there is a song in this world that was uh, inspired by the humanoid. It's well, I'll see if I can. I'll see if I can track it down and stick it on at the end. So uh, thanks for the tip. Now, before we go, I wanted to mention, and I forgot this last time we recorded, but we've had an email Ooh. and I didn't want to uh, to ignore that because it's okay. a really good email. So I'm going to read it out. This is from somebody called Mike Rosenbaum. Mm -hmm. And he said, hi, folks, I'm a new listener to the podcast and really enjoyed the episode on War of the Planets. Having seen most of this sci-fi series, your description of writing ideas on post-it notes, filming four movies back-to-back, -back, and then handing the unlabeled reels to an editor was a revelation. <laughs> it all makes perfect sense now. Um, so, yeah, so he's obviously talking about the uh, Cosmos War of the Planets. Yes. And how just confusing that whole thing was. Um, occasionally, I've seen a few Italian genre films on TV over the years, but recently discovered most while looking for feature films on YouTube. I'm glad that many are in the public domain, but hope that more will be preserved, restored, and hopefully get in the spotlight with a streaming channel somewhere. Um, maybe Movie Detective could pick up a few more like they did with Assignment Out of Space. Oh, like um, uh, Film Detective, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Film Detective, yeah, yeah. 
He says, I've delved into all the sci-fi, Peplum, Poliziotesky and Jallo that I can find, but my favourite has been the Euro spy films. And I'm sure we can all we can all go along with that. Well, I don't oh, know. Yeah. It's hard to choose, but I like them all. But yes, Eurospy is great. He says, although I enjoyed Bond films over the years, mostly the early ones, the Eurospy films have been less pretentious and the soundtracks can be memorable. The period, European scenery, <laughs> quite often because these films were European co-productions and they're just basically touristing around yeah. the different countries that have thrown them money. So it's like, oh, we need to go and have a scene. We need to go and have a scene in this bullring in Barcelona. And oh, now I've suddenly got to run off to uh, Paris. And it's just <laughs> just follow, following the money of whoever was funding them. Oh, um, yes. Uh, style and fashion and action make them enjoyable for repeat viewings. When I see a stuntman jumping between moving vehicles, it is more exciting to know that there wasn't any CGI or even medical insurance involved. <laughs> True. Um, yeah, like uh, he says, he likes to listen, he likes to make a mixtape of this. Or he would like to make a mixtape of the soundtracks if he can get one of his old cassette workers recording. Wow, his cassette recorders working. So wow, he's going to go old school and make a proper tape. Wow. And then he's also made us a list of some of his favourites that he's found on YouTube. And then he says, "Thanks for the great show. Looking forward to the next one." So, yeah, thanks, Mike. Here's some of the films that he likes that he's found on YouTube. Um, Top Secret, also called Segretissimo from 1966. Mm. Um, Sicario 77. I don't know that one. Secret Agent Fireball. Oh, I've seen that one. Yeah. Um, 008 Operation Exterminate. (laughs) That's a great name, but I haven't seen that one. Uh, Lightning Bolt, and now that one is a Margariti one. Yeah. So do know that one. Uh, Copland Saves His Skin. Now, I've heard of the Copland Eurospy films, but I'm not familiar with them, I think. Yeah, I don't know that one at all. I don't know that I'm familiar with them, yeah. Yeah, I don't know that one at all. Um, Then he's mentioned a couple of favourite Jallos, Eye in the Labyrinth, and and The Hook, and Poliziotesky's Almost Human, which is, of course, a a masterpiece. Amazing. and then an early Italian crime film, Johnny Cool. I can't remember who's in Johnny Cool. Oh, uh, oh my goodness! The, the same actor, one of the same actors who's in uh, Almost Famous. Um, I mean, I mean, Almost Human. Um, Thomas Thomas Millian. No, no, no. The uh, the other the the, um, the actor who plays the cop. Um, oh, good lord! The American actor. I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. Um, oh, Henry Silva. Henry Silva. Yeah, of me. course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's oh, he's always good. Um, Anyway, yeah. So thanks, Mike. It's good. To, it was good to hear people's favourite films, particularly uh, obviously in in this kind of area. Now we are going to do Eurospy at some point, and probably Peplum, Poliziotesky is high on the list. Um, yeah, there's some good films in there. Jallo, I, we might sneak some in, um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, all great. So thank you very much for uh, for all of that. Um, so yeah that's about it for all the mail people do also contact us on twitter so if you want to talk to us send us information about your favorite films or comments on the episodes then do uh do that you can find us on twitter and can i remember what we are called on twitter <laughs> uh, what's it, what's our username here we go i'm just gonna boringly look it up oh yeah of course we are the wild wild pod on twitter so 
do and look us up we're also on instagram just search for wawa podcast um now rod on your blog we should plug your latest post on there because you've collected uh, a nice little bunch of humanoid lobby cards and posters oh yeah that's true very cool so well there, there's some amazing artwork that was done for this film around yeah. the world and it's worth it's worth checking some of it out yeah so where, where can we find your blog it is the uh, bloody pit of rod uh you can actually find the address is uh, pit of rod.blogspot.com uh that's the kind of launching point for uh, both my podcasts uh, and uh, news and strange ideas about uh, all kinds of film. I, I love the painting of Richard Keel's character on the Italian poster. He's standing, he's basically sort of bestride the globe, looking <laughs> like a total hero um, uh-huh. in, in a costume that doesn't really look much like his actual costume in the movie. And he also looks much more handsome. Uh, it's almost poster. it's almost as if they were trying to portray that character as uh, uh, something other than what he was. Strange, mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not like not like film posters at all. To no, uh, no, exaggerate what's really going on. Uh, okay, well, anyway, thank you everybody for listening. That's been a, a brief coverage of the humanoid, also known in Germany as Fight for the Fifth Galaxy, which you know why not. Um, <laughs> that's really one of its alternate titles holy yeah Kampf und die hang on eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf. Kampf und die fünf Galaxis well I knew Fun. Cosmos King was a, was an alternate title but I hadn't heard yeah. that one wow yeah it's on some of the some of the lobby cards uh, that's pretty funny um, anyway so yeah these films again always have multiple titles um, speaking of which we're going to be coming up uh, we've got two films left yeah. Uh, for this season, both of which have multiple titles, but we'll talk more about those when we get to them. Now, I think we may uh, we may have hit the high point already <laughs> of the season. The next two films are going to be interesting. Uh, uh, they're, necess- they're, yeah, they are. Not necessarily good, but hopefully interesting. <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of torturing ourselves towards the end. I suppose well, a little bit, yeah. because we're covering a genre's rise and fall, then as it starts to run out of steam, the last couple of films are going to be a bit painful. But hey, let's think more positively. I'm sure Beast in Space will have something to offer. Hey, um, sometimes sometimes the dregs of a, of, of a genre can offer more entertainment value than you would expect. Yeah, we'll at least have something to laugh about, if, uh, if nothing else. Okay, thank you very much again, Rod, for joining me and for doing some research and generally being much better prepared than I am. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about these films Uh, thank you and thank you everybody for listening bye for now bye bye everyone
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.